open them up to Ephesians chapter 4. Two, two more weeks left in our community series that we've been going through this, this year. Uh, we've been talking about how Jesus sees his community as a radical kind of new understanding of a close-knit family. And we've been kind of basing all of this off of the idea of the Trinity, and we've talked about how God himself, God is by definition an eternal community of love. Uh, And then God made us in his image, in that image. And so we reflect that eternal reality, that because God is an eternal community of love, we were made to live in and exist in this community of love we often refer to as the church. And so we've been talking through this idea of the triune, uh, kind of four triune truths, uh, that, that God is fully equal, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And in that same matter, that every single human that's ever existed, made in the image of God, deserves and demands dignified equality, that we are all created absolutely equal. But even within that full equality, the, the Trinity has submission, it has roles. So the Spirit serves the Son, the Son submits to the Father. And so even in the midst of full equality, there is glad submission. And then we have two left. Today we're going to talk about joyful intimacy, and then next week we'll talk about mutual difference and how does this all play out in a church community. And so today uh, what we're doing is we're using the book of Ephesians to kind of explore these four triune truths. And so today we'll be looking at how Jesus' community is a new humanity of joyful intimacy. But already we have to kind of stop and do a little bit of thinking because in recent years intimacy uh, or, or having intimate relationship with someone has become almost exclusively physical in nature, kind of reserved for some sort of marriage relationship. But that being said, the term intimacy in the more literal sense, if you go look it up in Webster's or something like that, it's just going to say something along the lines of intimacy is a close familiarity or a close friendship. The idea is that intimacy is to both know and be known. And that's where the rub comes. It's kind of like the roller coaster, right? Because to know and be known is a little scary. It's a little intimidating. Haley and I were watching TV this week, and uh, there's this scene in the show where it's the classic uh, couples dating, and the girl's about to break up with the guy in the coffee shop. It's that, you know, trope scene. And so uh, she said this. I had to go look up the transcript because I thought it was so interesting given what I'm preaching on. So she's about to break up with him, and she goes, uh, dating, dating is so odd, isn't it? I mean, we're all strangers, essentially. So how is it ever possible to truly feel safe with someone? I suppose you can't. You know, my friend Flo once told me that intimacy was all about leaving yourself open to being attacked. Isn't that horrible? But I mean, it does make you realize how scary it is allowing yourself to be intimate. And I've been been thinking about that. That may not be the definition I would go with for intimacy, but at minimum, it is one worth mentioning. Intimacy is all about leaving yourself open to being attacked. True intimacy demands vulnerability, and I'm just not sure how much we recognize how difficult that really is. And so we become really good at putting on masks and building walls so that we can have relationships, but not intimate relationships. 
not vulnerable relationships. Oh, we love the familiarity part. I love being familiar with people and knowing about their lives. But in terms of intimacy and vulnerability, I'm, I'm just not interested in that. Because thinking about it, there are tons of things in this world that I am familiar with that, that I know about. Uh, the, the Tennessee Vols, right? They beat Florida for the first time in six years yesterday. Wonderful day. Awesome. Great day. That's why I'm wearing my orange shirt. Uh, that's like the rivalry. So I'm always happy when Tennessee beats Florida. There are certain pastors and authors that I'm really familiar with that I love reading what they put out. There are particular hobbies that I enjoy, so much so that uh, there will come times that I'll just keep talking about it, and Haley will say, I know, you've already told me, it's like the 47th time today you've made mention of that. But is there intimacy between me and the Tennessee Volunteers? Like, there's not a single person involved in that entire staff or program that even knows I exist. They they. And it's not that they're like being malicious towards me. They just don't care. Like some random pastor in Portales, New Mexico wears an orange shirt when we win. Who cares? Right? Like there's no intimacy there. I have familiarity, but not intimacy. I have familiarity with the pastors and authors that I like. Peter Scazzaro, John Mark Comer, Mark Sayers, Tim Mackey. Guys that I just try to read everything they put out recently. But they're not calling me and checking in on me. They're highly influential in my life, their teachings and their writings, but there is no intimacy. The only means of intimacy within relationships of my life are those who I can know and who in turn know me. Those who could take my vulnerability and turn it around and attack me and just decimate me. But I trust they won't out of this faith in the relationship, out of what we may call love. And all of this is just a callback to the triune God who exists in eternity in this very vulnerability of joyful intimacy. The Father loves and leads the Son, knowing Jesus' purpose and destiny, issuing his call and communicating his will. The Son knows and trusts the Father, following his will, trusting his purpose, that even when it leads him to a cross, it is still the right and good will. And so he, in an intimate relationship, entrusts himself to that. The Spirit knows the identity of the Father and the Son and conveys that in identity to us. And so within the DNA of the Trinity is this joyful intimacy where each person of the Trinity both knows and is known. So how then do we cultivate this idea of joyful intimacy in church? How do we establish a church where people can both know and be known? How do we put forth relationships where we just drop our defenses open to attack with the only solace being that we have trust for one another? Because we know that's our need. Deep down, that's what we long for. Psychologists and counselors have done so much studying to figure out why is it that we keep longing for this intimacy. And from what we can figure out, it's just a human nature trait that draws us into who we really are. And then as a theologian, we could come out and say, because that's who the triune God is and we're made in his image. But the problem is, as per usual, we've become really good at attempting to take the good things God has for us and manipulate and twist them and try to formulate it into our own hands. So we get this idea that if we just try hard enough, we can come up with the idea of our own intimacy. We can curate it. We can cultivate it. We can grow it ourselves. 
And so we end up coming to this conclusion that really all intimacy is is just this deeper affirmation into whoever we think we are. And so uh, we, we go and we search for intimacy, and if that person doesn't affirm who I think I am, then I'll just break contact with them, and I'll go over here, and I'll try to find intimacy with this person or these people until they don't tell me who I think I am, and they don't give affirmation to that. And this is where, uh, this is where I know this is a dated reference at this point, but it still works. You guys remember American Idol, right? Remember what Wayne says, if you can sing. You remember watching the people getting up in American Idol and singing and all the judges being like, who let you into this room? And they would say, I know I can sing. My friends tell me I'm a good singer. You're like, no. Is there intimate relationship between them and their friends? Absolutely not. There's just affirmation, and affirmation is not intimacy. There's something that demands vulnerability, the willingness and ability to be truthful and honest and open and have this intimate relationship and connection. And this this logical conclusion of all we're looking for is affirmation and that's all we need for intimacy is now carrying itself out to its logical conclusion and is just decimating relationships and people in the process. To the point that now there are some really fringe ideas out there trying to suggest ways that we can build intimacy ourselves through, through technological, and I hate to even use this word, but like technological advance. And so more recently, the articles that have been coming out about this, uh, you know, historically the church has been in big debates on, you know, what is the definition of marriage and who can and who cannot be married. But just in June this year, Bloomberg comes out with an op-ed piece that the debate that they're saying is by 2050 will not be uh, who, what two people can get married, but will the state recognize human robot marriages? That AI will become so sophisticated, will be able to respond that we can actually set up relationships between you and a robot, and, and you can have that relationship, and the state will have to recognize that as a marriage, because that's what you need for intimacy. And by, and by the way, uh, the other side of that is we as Christians read stuff like that, and it's really easy that we quickly go to outrage, and I can't believe what this world's coming to. Who would think? And I would just say to that, there, there is a stage for anger, and that's okay, but when we look at Jesus' response over Jerusalem, and he sees the brokenness, and that's what an article like that is, it's clarification on the brokenness of the world. It leads Jesus to desperation. He weeps. He prays. And so I just say all that to say this is the direction that our culture is heading when it comes to intimacy because it's so far off. And we in church hold the answer in the gospel and in the trinity and in the reality of God. And what we have to do is take that answer and pray that God would show the world what real, true, actual intimacy can look like where we can both know and be known. Articles like this are just proving that we as a community, we as people, we as a culture are grasping at straws to find intimacy and we're coming short over and over and over again. So we invent the idea, hey, all you need for intimacy is validation. All you need is affirmation. You just need to get your feelings and emotions, put them out there, let, make sure everyone affirms that, and then you can move on. And if you can't find that with that group, go to this group, and we create ping pong ball culture, and we bounce back and forth, and now we're hyper-connected beyond what we've ever been in the history of humanity, and long-term, legitimate intimacy is nowhere to be found. This is nothing new. God created us in his own image for intimacy. He created us to learn, to create, to cultivate in his image. But anytime we try to do the things he made us to do in ourselves, in our own ability, in our own power, we just create the idol of self and we fall short of his purpose. So how do we find intimacy? 
intimacy. How do we find meaningful, lasting, purposeful relationship and community? So this is the question I want to ask this morning as we explore Ephesians chapter 4. So actually, Kelsey, I think two slides away from this, I have just this question. How do we find intimacy? And I just kind of want to leave that up for now. If you have your Bibles, uh, go to Ephesians chapter 4. Let me just dive right into this and read what Paul is saying. Chapter 4, verse 17. Therefore, I say this and testify in the Lord. You should no longer live as the Gentiles live in the futility of their thoughts. They are darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them and because of the hardness of their hearts. They've become callous and given themselves over to promiscuity for the practice of every kind of impurity with a desire for, excuse me, for more and more. But that's not how you came to know Christ. Assuming you heard about him and were taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, take off your former way of life, the old self that is corrupt by deceitful desires to be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and put on the new self, the one created according to God's likeness in the righteousness and purity of the truth. Therefore, putting away uh, lying, speak the truth to one another and his neighbor, because we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. And don't give the devil an opportunity. Let the thief no longer steal. Instead, he's to do honest work with his own hands so that he has something to share with anyone in need. No foul language should come from your mouth, but only what is good for building up someone in need so that it gives grace to those who hear. And don't grieve God's Holy Spirit. You were sealed by him for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and anger and wrath, shouting and slander be removed from you along with all malice. And be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another just as God also forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as dearly loved children and walk in love as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to take this question, and we're just going to kind of do a quick tour through these, these verses. I'll hit a verse, give some commentary, hit a verse, give some commentary. And at the very end, we'll come back to this question and ask, does Ephesians 4 help us understand where and how we find joyful intimacy as a church? So let's just kick right in contextually what's, what's going on here. Uh, We've talked rather extensively about Ephesians over the last few weeks, but kind of the general model is the first three chapters of Ephesians are philosophical, theological, hey, how are you saved? What has Jesus done to redeem you, to set you free from your sins, to give you this new identity? And then in chapter 4, he hits it and he says, therefore, walk in a way worthy of this calling. And so he's going to say, hey, here's who you are, 1 through 3, and then chapter 4, here's what you do about it. Here's the actions. Here's the application. Now, the problem with that is when we just read passages like chapter 4, sometimes we come to this conclusion that what Christianity, what church is all about is we give this rule set, and if you're a good Christian, if you follow these rules. And so here's our rules. Follow them. If you don't follow them, we'll be really mad at you. So you got, it's almost like Paul's a helicopter parent, and he's just like writing a list of rules, and he's flying in over Ephesus. He's like, hey, did you guys do your homework? Oh, you did your homework. Well, did you clean your room? You cleaned your room. Oh, well, did you take the trash out? You take the trash out. Well, let me go. And he's just like giving off rules. And then what we do is if we think that, we end up getting bogged down by all of this. Wait a minute. There's all these rules I have to follow, and what about when I follow this rule? And What's going on? How do I make this? And it's burdensome and it weighs on us. And I would just say right off the top, please understand that is not what Paul is trying to do within this passage. 
If you, play clo- if you pay close attention, Paul's concern in this is actually not behavior. It's not the checklist. It's not the rules. Paul's concern with this is the core source, the core motivation behind that behavior. See, there are things deep within us that, that control and determine what it is we do outside of us. There's identity and worldview and purpose. And Paul wants to address that before he addresses the behavior. See, if the way we behave flows out of who we believe ourselves to be, the question is not, what are the rules so that I can follow them? The question is, who am I? Who are we? Even more importantly, who does Jesus make us to be? Because if Jesus changes your identity, chapters 1 through 3, then he also, by design, changes your behavior, chapters 4 through 6. So Paul is not giving just a list of rules and saying, good luck, go follow them. He paints a picture of identities, the old and the new. So we start off in verse 17, and he says, hey, because you have this new identity, I say and testify in the Lord, you should no longer live as the Gentiles live. Now, that's really interesting, because if you've been reading up until this point, there's a couple conundrums in this. If you go back to chapter 3, verse 1, Paul says this, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, chapter 2, verse 11 So then, remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh. And now he's saying, hey, don't live like the Gentiles. Who's he writing to? The Gentiles. Do you understand that that's like Paul saying, like, hey, guys, don't be Americans anymore. And you're like, well, I am an American, so where does that leave us, Paul? Is Paul, you know, contradicting himself here? No, he's he's so much smarter than that. That's not Paul's point. Paul's point is that he's coming in and he's saying, hey, in Christ, that's what we talked about last week, in Christ, your foundational identity has changed. It has nothing to do with your ethnicity or your background. Your foundational identity has everything to do now with the character and person of Jesus. And he's going to go on to paint what that looks like, and we'll talk about that. But for now, please understand this. Paul's starting point is identity. Who are you because you claim the name of Jesus. And then out of that identity flows your behavior. I listened to a sermon about this very thing a couple weeks ago, and uh, the pastor gave a really cool illustration, so I'm just going to steal it, but I have a picture up here. Um, This is a lady. Her name is Crystal Jones. Um, Crystal Jones works for Teach for America, and so she, uh, back in kind of 2014, 2015, was placed in an inner-city school in Atlanta, Georgia. It was a school that, in fact, had so little resources, uh, they couldn't do kindergarten. So she was tasked teaching first grade to six- and seven-year-olds who had never even been in school before. Just never, no kindergarten. They came into this level. And, but yet Atlanta, as their Georgia curriculum, dictated that they were expected to be at a reading level and a math level of an average first-grade student. These are kids that never even went to kindergarten. So she said, I got in there, and most of the kids didn't even know what the alphabet was. They had never seen numbers before, and I had to have them able to read sight words and even full sentences by the end of the year, and I was left stuck wondering, how on earth do I do this? And so as she talks about this, she talks about how one day she had the kids out on the playground and she was watching them, and these first graders, she said she would notice that they would constantly look from their playground over to the other playground where the third graders were were playing, and they would stare at the third graders, and anytime they saw a third grader do something, they would run and do the same thing. That That was their whole thing. She said, I realized that what my first graders wanted more than anything else was they wanted to be third graders. 
that's what they wanted. And she said, I realized that if I came in every single day and I said, okay, today we're learning sight words. That didn't matter. I said, we're going to learn math today. Who cares? She says, so what I did is I came in and said, it looks to me like you guys want to be third graders. What do you guys know about third graders? And they say, well, they're bigger than us. Okay, third graders are bigger than you, but can they do math better than you? Yeah, third graders can do math better than us. Can they read better than you guys? Well, yeah, third graders can read better than us. Well, if you want to become a third grader, what do you need to get better at? And they say, well, I guess we need to get better at math and reading. And she says, well, I'll tell you what. If you will listen to me and learn from me, what I can do is I will turn you guys into third graders. I will get you to where you are reading and doing math on a third grade level. And so she sets up this whole environment of her classroom of I'm going to turn you first graders into third graders. And so she changes all these kind of little silly rules here. And she says, hey, actually, we're not going to call each other by the first names anymore. We're going to call each other by Scholar Smith or Scholar Jones. And every day, we're gonna, the first thing we're going to do is we're going to quote what it is to be a scholar. A scholar is someone who loves to learn and they're good at it. And still to this day, because she, she'll write about this, uh, she refers to her students not as students but as scholars. She's, I think she's a principal in Las Vegas, Nevada now. She says, our school is filled with 1,400 scholars, kindergartners, you know, is what she's talking about. And so her whole point is, if I change their identities, and when someone comes in and visits the classroom, she would say, hey, welcome to my class of scholars. Today they're learning about math or they're learning about reading. And by the six-month mark, they had already surpassed the first-grade reading level, and by the end of the year, 90% had already surpassed third-grade reading levels. Just crazy statistics. It never, and so now like psycho, uh, Psychology Today is like writing about this and everything she did. But what, what is it that she did? She didn't come in and say, all right, guys, it's clear that you don't know how to set in seats and act right, so I'm putting up this list of rules, and if you don't follow this list of rules, I'm sending you to the principal's office. I'm sure she probably had to deal with some stuff like that. But the core part of the growth of her classroom was, I will change your identity. This is exactly what Paul's doing with Ephesus. He's saying, hey, it's not about us just following these rules together. It's about us formulating this new identity of who we are. And when we understand that we are not our ethnicity, we are not our past, we are not our addictions, we are not whatever it is we think defines us, but in Christ we are actually identified as Christ. His righteousness, his goodness, his life, then from there changes the behavior. That's where the things and the change starts to happen. So he starts out, hey, don't live like the Gentiles anymore. Hey, hey, you Gentiles, you don't have to live that way now. And what does that way look like? Verse 18, they're darkened from their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them and because of the hardness of their hearts. And to us, we're like, ooh, that's pretty, pretty harsh. Now, understand, Paul's not just giving commentary on their intelligence. He's like, hey, you're really smart now. You used to be really not smart, but now you're smart. That's not what Paul's saying. This is his way of saying, how is it that we find moral formation? How is it that we have this moral knowledge and moral sensitivity into who we are? He says, these people that are the Gentiles, that are far from God, they've been darkened in their understanding. And then verse 19, they became callous and gave themselves over to promiscuity for the practice of every kind of impurity with a desire for more and more. I think what Paul's asking here is he's saying, how do people become this way. Remember, Paul's in prison when he's writing this, which means Paul is probably surrounded by Roman centurions who do not blink twice at pulling out a bullwhip and hitting a prisoner with it. You think, how does someone get to that level of mentality where they can pull out a whip, hit another human being, and draw blood to the point that you can see bone on their back? 
How does someone go from an innocent baby, and I get it, original sin, but a baby to an adult that does this on a regular basis? How does a husband go to his wife and say, hey, I love you, and then leave his wife and go to the local temple and participate in fertility worship in the local temple? How do we, as people, get so far removed from what is right and what is good that all of a sudden what is poor and evil and wrong just becomes normal to our everyday brains? And Paul says, this is calluses. This is just what happens as it starts in the mind. It's the inevitable reality when we usurp the throne of God and declare ourselves ruler. Because when we are the rulers of our own lives and over the things around us, we will always conveniently write ourselves off as the good guy and point the other people as the bad guy. And given enough time, this moral problem creates calluses. So what's the repair to this callous? Verse 20, that's not how you came to know Christ, as assuming you've heard about him and were taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus. And he gives the solution. 22, take off your former way of life, the old self that is corrupted by deceitful desires, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and put on the new self, the one who created according to God's likeness in the righteousness and purity of the truth. The repair for these calluses are not go do good works. The repair for these calluses is not try really hard not to think that way anymore. Paul gives three things here. He says, put off your old self. And he's going to say, put on your new self. But right in the middle is this kind of weird phrase that he puts. He says it this way. Uh, Verse 22, take off your old self. And verse 23, to be renewed in the spirit of your mind. So the question is, who is doing the renewing? He doesn't say, take off your old self and renew your minds. He says, no, no, you bring yourself to God, and then who does the renewal? God does the renewal. You be renewed. It's not that you are renewing yourselves, but you come to God, and God renews you for you. God gives you the new identity, and this is how these calluses change. If it weren't for God, all of us would be just like the Roman centurion, not hesitating to beat and take advantage of other people, because that's what sin does to us but it's God's grace that comes in and renews our mind and gives us a different outlook on life. That that old self, Paul's going to say, it's marked by deceitful desires. And the deceptive part of these desires, really at its core, are not that they're always bad and wrong to start with, but it's that they take a good thing and manipulate it into a bad thing. We all have desire for relationships. Desire to be stable, desire for meaning work, desire to know and be known, desire for intimacy. And all of those are desires that God orders and provides for. But in the old humanity, those desires trick you. They trick you into thinking that they're the ultimate ends of themselves. And then once you get there, once you get that relationship, once you make that amount of money, then the only thing that desire does is it extends out a little bit further and says, oh, you want some more of this. This is Paul's point in verse 19. That they were taken by every kind of impurity with a desire for more and more, more intimacy, more finances, more in relationship, more meaning. So what do we do? We don't do anything. We just take ourselves to God who then renews us. The renewal starts by seeing the problem with the old humanity, bringing that humanity to God who then renews our mind and gives us a new way of life. This is not a new set of rules. This is the gospel, that Jesus' community is a new humanity, and that's the environment, that's the call that we live in. So what does this look like? And he's going to start painting pictures in verse 25. So he says, hey, this looks like putting away lying and speaking the truth. So 
Hey, the old humanity, those are people that lie. They're not confident in the reality that they live in, so they have to make up a reality, a reality about themselves, a reality about the way things look, a reality about who everything is, and so they, they present this as truth when it's not. It's just a life of lying. And lying is not just the words we say that are untrue, but it's the presentations we make in ourselves that are not true. It's the things we try to put on, the masks we put on, that's lying. And Paul's saying you can't have intimacy if that's the way you live. Instead, what you need to do is put off lying and speak the truth to his neighbor. And he's going to go on and he's going to say in verse 26, be angry and do not sin. Now, it's really interesting. Paul does not say do not be angry. He says, hey, when you are angry, don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Uh, in a lot of ways, it's like Paul's saying be like God who one of key characteristics and key definitions is that God is slow to anger. So rather than rekindling the fire of your anger every night and letting it lead you to the cold shoulder and to avoid people and the grudges that you hold, all that is anger. Instead, let the fire go out every night and trust it to God. Anger gives you commentaries because anger is this gut kind of emotional reaction to protect something usually yourself or a loved one, or maybe it is the worldview of the Bible. But hey, don't let anger be the controlling factor. Let it motivate you back to God. He's going to say, hey, don't steal, but, but work for what you do. Don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but build one another up. Don't grieve the spirit. We talk a lot about what does all of that mean, and I think if I could just really quickly put a very clear kind of I think grieving the spirit is just anything that would limit what God's trying to do in this church, in Portalis, and in the world. Your sin is a grief to the spirit. He wants to do something, and you're saying, no, I'd rather have my way. That conflict, that controversy, that lack of forgiveness, that anger, that lie, that stealing, all of that are things that grieve the spirit because they prevent intimate relationships within one another. He's going to go on and say, let your bitterness be turned to kindness. Let your anger and wrath turn to compassion. Let your shouting and slander turn to forgiveness. And why should we do all of this? Chapter 5, verse 1, because we are imitators of God. Therefore, be imitators of God as dearly loved children. Walk in love. What is the core ethic of Jesus' community of new humanity? What is our core ethic? It's not some emotion. The core ethic is not some obligation. It's not a set of rules that we must follow. The core ethic is a story that proclaims from the mountaintop across the world, you are dearly loved. God has declared you dearly loved. This is what the gospel is all about, that God so loved the world, a story of how God first loved us. And God's love is not an emotion, because if you go to verse 2, then you walk in love as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us. Love is an act a self-giving act for the well-being of another, regardless of how they respond to that. See, Paul is painting an environment where Jesus' new community is a new humanity of joyful intimacy. So how do we find that? We give ourselves over to the identity of Christ. The only way to find that is to give ourselves over to the identity of Christ. Back at the start, I, I quoted from that show. This character, she says, uh, you know, my friend Flo once told me that intimacy was all about leaving yourself open to being attacked. Now he just says, what if we did that? 
What if our stance was, you know what, I'm going to be open that here are the things that I am and here's who I am. And you could take advantage of that. And you could attack that. And yeah, it will hurt me. But I trust you won't because we have a mutual love in Christ. And I trust that if you did, God is able to do something far greater than he could even if I wasn't being attacked. This is Jesus' story in the gospel. That Jesus gives himself open to attack and then out of a love for the very people attacking him, he does what? He dies for them. And this is the story of how unity and restoration comes to mankind. This is the type of intimacy that God wants us to have at First Baptist Portalis. This is the type of intimacy that God wants us to have as humanity because it starts in the identity of God. So this is what we're going to celebrate this morning. As we take the bread and the cup, this isn't just a commentary on Jesus came to save me. Absolutely, he came to save me, set me free from my sin. That's all within this. But alongside of that, with that reality, is that God came to restore me to a joyful state of intimacy with the people around me. That I can be vulnerable. And so as we reflect on this, I just want to give you some time in prayer. Just pray, God, is that the type of relationships I have here? And if it's not, how do I go and find those? How do I let you be my identity, my trust? And if you do have that, to let this whole next few minutes be this stage of worship to God Almighty, entrusting that the person next to you and the person in front of you and behind you are all doing this together out of joyful intimacy for one another. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for our identity in Christ who first loved us and gave himself for us. God, we could never do this ourselves. There's no way it's achieving any ounce of intimacy in our own rights. It's only by your grace and goodness. So God, let us experience that right here even now. God, let First Baptist Church sincerely be a place of joyful intimacy. Thank you for providing that. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's stand.